Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Paul Davies, who is Professor of Physics and Cosmology at Arizona State University. His research interests have focused mainly on quantum gravity, early universe cosmology, the theory of quantum black holes, and the nature of time. He has also made important contributions to the field of astrobiology and was an early advocate of the theory that life on Earth may have originated on Mars. Welcome, Paul. Yes, Delighted to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I was uh, reading through your essay, uh, Paul, What is Life in Search of a Unified Theory of Everything? And uh, I come to you, I, I have to say, unencumbered by knowledge. That we, can, <laughs> we can take it uh, wherever you think is uh, interesting. Um, uh, so I thought we would start with a definition. So do we have a crisp definition for life yet? Well, I think the whole purpose of the essay and the book on which it was based is that we don't have a definition of life. And I should say this question, what is life? Uh, I'm not the first physicist to ask that. Uh, you're probably aware that the most successful scientific theory of all time is called quantum mechanics. Uh, it explains the nature of matter all the way from subatomic particles up through materials right up to the nature of stars. And one of the architects of quantum mechanics in the 1920s was Erwin Schrödinger, Austrian theoretical physicist. Uh, and Schrödinger thought that this theory brilliantly accounted for the nature of all matter except living matter. Mm. And during World War II, he sought sanctuary in Dublin, which was uh, in neutral Ireland at the time. So he wasn't involved in the war effort, uh, but he chose to devote his attention to this question, what is life? Gave a series of lectures in 1943 at uh, Trinity College in Dublin, became a book with that title, and it was very influential in the early stages of what we now call molecular biology. So Crick and Watson, who discovered very famously the 
double helix structure of DNA were much influenced by Schrodinger's addressing this question, what is life? Well, fast forward all these years, all these decades, we really still don't have a definition of how living matter and non-living matter uh, differ in a fundamental way. Yeah. Uh, you can list properties of life, uh, but it's always possible to find non-living things with those same properties. So I have a particular take on it. Uh, for me, uh, life is not just about complex chemistry. It's about complex chemistry that can run software. It's organized information. So it's matter uh, which organizes information in a way that is very distinctive. So for me, life is all about this elusive thing called information. And I think if we focus on that, if you like the software of life, not the hardware, yeah. uh, then we will find the, the key. And of course, what we want is a definition of life that will work even on other worlds where the biochemistry may be totally different. So the hardware might be different, but I think there are universal software principles which pick out life as a very exceptional uh, system. Yeah, I, I can I can internalize that, Paul. Um, uh, in a bit about computers, and it, it does make a lot of sense. But oftentimes, biologists who come on the show and neuroscientists, uh, neurologists, don't like to make an analogy an analogy to computers because they they believe the human brain is substantially different. Uh, which is which is likely true, but Schrodinger is interesting. Um, you know, after having done all the work in quantum mechanics, um, this question around life uh, seems to take him in a slightly different direction, right? I suppose you could say that uh, here was a brilliant physicist who had done incredible work in his twenties, but had the opportunity in later years to indulge uh, these uh, more esoteric interests. Mm. Uh, this happens with many scientists. Uh, and so, of course, it was a departure. But the book he wrote uh, really isn't terribly radical. He's not suggesting uh, anything that, uh, would, that shocked the scientific community. But he did leave open yeah. the possibility, as he called it, of a new kind of physical law prevailing in it, it's being living matter. And uh, over the years, I don't think very many physicists have taken seriously the idea there might be new physics in life. But I've come around to the point of view that there is, that we can only fully understand life uh, by uh, recognizing that the physics of living matter differs fundamentally from the physics of non-living matter in a way that relates to this information concept. This is really no more than a pious hope at this stage. I haven't written down the equations that uh, couple the information to the matter in a way that says, if it does this, it's life. If it does that, it isn't life. Haven't got that far yet. But this whole line of inquiry, I think, is proving very fruitful. And there are many scientists at the intersection of physics, biology, chemistry, computing, and nanotechnology. All those things come together in the micro realm where living organisms are storing, uh, processing and replicating information. I think we're going to find there is some new physics going on there. Yeah, I mean, that is, that, that's a big change. Uh, physicists suggesting new physics uh, 
um, to explain something outside the domain uh, <laughs> it's a big leap forward. Um, but, you're right. But, you're right there. I mean, that's absolutely right. I'd just like to comment on that because um, you have to avoid uh, what in previous generations was known as vitalism uh, of saying, well, living organisms are so strange and they differ from other complex systems in such a fundamental way. There must be some extra stuff or ingredient or something uh, that infuses them and brings them alive. And similarly with consciousness, people will say, well, you know, uh, thoughts and feelings and sensations, these things can't be captured by atoms and molecules and just referring to the forces between them. We need something extra. Um, but in science, it's always a dangerous thing to sort of paste on some additional uh, physical entity. So I'm not suggesting there's any... Um, uh, sort of nebulous stuff inside living, uh, let alone thinking uh, matter, uh, but that the laws of physics, as we currently understand them, are simply inadequate to encompass the types of features that I've been talking about involving information processing and what we often call top-down causation, the ability for the system as a whole yeah. uh, to, uh, to have causative e efficacy, to use a cumbersome term, to actually have clout when it comes uh, down to the uh, microscopic level. We tend to think of everything the other way, that yeah. if you understand the components, you understand the whole system. But it's very clear living organisms have feedback loops in which the organism as a whole feeds back into the microscopic activity. And um, expressing that mathematically and trying to capture that with traditional laws of physics is impossible. We need a, a new mathematical framework for it. Yeah, so, so from a definitional perspective, one thing that, without knowing anything about it, one thing that I can understand is that there appears to be an objective function. There appears to be a goal for life. Um, the objective functions appears, at least, Paul, it's, it seems pretty simplistic. Um, sustenance and replication, there aren't too many factors, it looks like, uh, in the objective function, but, but it appears that uh, they have a goal to satisfy. Uh, I think there's no doubt that living organisms yeah. uh, seem to operate as if there is an agenda, uh, a goal or, or purposes. Obviously, that's true of human beings. But you only have to look at a dog, you know, look sniffing for a bone or something like that, or even a humble bacterium uh, working its way up a chemical gradient towards a food source. Um, to recognize this is one of the fundamental features of, of living matter. Now, uh, in biology, uh, goals or destinations, or the, to use the philosophical term, teleology, uh, has something of a bad press, but it arises in two completely different contexts. Um, one of these is the individual organism uh, working towards something, having some internal algorithm or agenda that programs it to do this or that um, in order to uh, gain some advantage. Uh, and so it's a, a, from the mathematical point of view, it's an optimization problem. Yeah. Organisms take in information, they garner information from their environment, they process it internally, uh, they devise a strategy, and then they act according to that. Plants do it as well. It's not just um, 
just uh, animals or bacteria. Um, but then there's the other, you know, the great sweep of biological evolution over uh, billions of years. And that's where it was always very contentious because Darwin famously said, well, uh, I'm not sure he was the one to put it in these words, but nature cannot look ahead. Uh, that uh, it, all that happens is that at the time, if there are slight variations, some variants will be favoured over others and will go on to, to replicate their favourable traits. And so it's a very simple idea, um, as opposed to the work of uh, the biologist, the French biologist uh, Lamarck, uh, who suggested that uh, if organisms strive in their lifetime uh, to achieve certain goals, that this will change the nature of their offspring to make it easier for them to achieve those goals. So the giraffe straining its neck to reach the high branches will mm -hmm. give rise to longer-necked progeny. Um, that's pretty thoroughly knocked on the head in the manner I've described it. Mm -hmm. So the idea that somehow there's a blueprint or roadmap for the great evolutionary venture uh, with um, some particular destination, like intelligent beings, um, is really frowned upon by most biologists. But there's a caveat to what I've just said, which is uh, that, uh, that, that there's a shadow of Lamarckism uh, still alive in biology uh, in as much as there, there is the ability of organisms, it's not so prominent in human beings, but certainly some other organisms uh, can transmit uh, information into the germline, so their progeny, acquire uh, characteristics which are coloured in some way by the experiences of the parents and grandparents and so on. This has been pretty thoroughly demonstrated. It's often called epigenetic inheritance, yeah. intergenerational epigenetic inheritance, another mouthful. Um, but the evidence for that now is uh, overwhelming. So this simple original Darwinian picture of it's just all random and there's no destination is really not quite true. It's much more subtle. Yeah, so, so I want to push the idea of goals a little bit further, uh, Paul. So, um, so, so we understand goals from kind of a human-centric perspective, but couldn't we just say, couldn't we say that Earth has a goal of going around the sun in 365 days? Isn't that a goal? Uh, it's interesting you should raise that because there's a way of formulating the laws of mechanics uh, in which you would cast it in precisely those terms. Uh, so when uh, Newton wrote down the equations for how uh, uh, planets move, uh, it's, you solve those equations, you, you find their trajectories, uh, and that's, it's often called an initial value problem. If you know where the planet is today and how it's moving, you can work out where it's going to be next week, and all that is uh, pretty standard stuff. Um, but about 100 years later, the laws of mechanics got reformulated in a rather different way where... Um, you fix the initial and the final state, and then uh, you, you look for the path that connects them. Mm. Um, and so, uh, although it would be wrong to say uh, the Earth is, um, you know, looking to, to be back where it was in a year's time, uh, that, that's not really true. Um, there, there's a, a type of, of way you can uh, regard it like that. We still use the term water seeks its own level or the bottom level or something like that as if it's got a mind of its own doesn't have a, a mind of its own but there is a way you can set up the laws of mechanics that is uh, more favorable to that way of thinking 
but I, but I think yeah, you, you know what the reason that a living organism uh, like a bacterium moving towards a goal is different from the earth moving around the sun is precisely because the, what I mentioned earlier that the bacterium is processing information it's got inbuilt algorithms that takes that sensory input data uh, processes it and then responds accordingly and so the earth doesn't sort of sniff out its way around the sun uh, but bacteria will do exactly that so, so it's information for, that counts yeah so, so for an external observer therefore uh, is it predictability that differentiates so for example if i just look at the system i can say i can predict where the earth is going to be i cannot necessarily predict at least deterministically what the bacterium is going to do so is it right. the 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 predictability that differentiates uh, life from non life systems uh, it's uh, an answer uh, yes and no uh, so many years ago i wrote about a few throw a dead bird into the air you can work out uh, where it's going to land it's very predictable you throw a live bird into the air and you have no idea where it's going to come down uh, and so uh, that's part of it but we do of course know that there are non-living complex systems uh, that are in practice unpredictable uh, these so-called chaotic systems yeah uh, just think of a roulette wheel or a coin toss or the path of a hurricane many, many examples where uh, the sensitivity to initial conditions is so great that if, unless you had infinite precision, for all practical purposes, you can't uh, figure out what they're going to do, their future trajectory, or it might be very limited in time. And so these uh, types of systems, these chaotic systems are very familiar in science. Uh, they're all over the place. Uh, the, the Earth going around the sun is not one of them. Right, but there right. are many, many others. And so predictability is only part of it, I think. It's only part of it. So are the goals themselves generated? I'm trying to get to, you know, do we have, so, so suppose, you know, we have X and Y. What are the tests that we could utilize that give us a very high confidence that X is life and Y is not? Uh, that's uh, an interesting way of expressing it. Uh, don't have a ready answer. Um, I, I'm thinking that uh, you see there are uh, lots of experiments with entities that seem to be lifelike but are not living. Yeah. Uh, there's one particular one that my university is investigating, and they're called xenobots. Um, and these are uh, where cells are uh, harvested from, I think, a frog. Uh, and they form little clumps. Yeah. Uh, they look like cells, but they're not. Uh, but they have some sort of lifelike behavior and some things that aren't. Uh, and it's your suggestion that we might be able to agree on an experimental protocol uh, that would uh, separate out just a very uh, elaborate type of xenobot from a real living thing is, is an interesting one. Um, if we want to go a little bit up in the scale of investigation, then uh, another group of colleagues of mine here at Arizona State University like to work with ants. And ants are interesting because uh, they engage in collective decision-making for their goals. Yeah. So it's not like there's uh, a sort of 
chief ant that decides this place is getting overcrowded. Uh, we're going to move to a you know, bigger nest uh, and I'll go and find it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the ants are scurrying around. Uh, they communicate in complicated ways with each other and uh, they arrive at decisions. No one ant says, right, that's it, I'm in charge, we're all doing this. Um, they somehow collectively arrive at those decisions. And the experiments that uh, my colleagues do, uh, these ants might have a, a trail towards food, for example, yeah. and then they'll put an obstacle in the way and see, well, how do the ants figure out what to do? Uh, and then they'll trick them in some other way. And so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of... Um, of this type of experimentation, where these clever little ants uh, seem to figure out uh, what to do. And so uh, it would be interesting to have at a, at a somewhat lower level, something that would uh, identify where a goal is being attained yeah. because of some internal information processing going on. I keep coming back to that. There's, uh, yeah. They will have an algorithm. And it, and I think it, it would be true of plants as well. Um, I, my wife and I have just been uh, spending a lot of time uh, in our garden here because we were away in Australia for a year. And when we came back, things looked a bit of a mess. Uh, and in particular, there have been storms and uh, you know, trees have blown down and plants looked uh, uh, like they need a lot of attention. And so you come along and then you... You know, you prune a bush, uh, oleander, say, or bougainvillea or something like that. You prune it to make it sort of look nice. And then I thought, well, you know, how does the plant respond to this? It, it, uh, and we've removed the tree that crashed down over it, you know. So it does it think, well, the tree's now gone, so I can grow in that direction because it's more light. But on the other hand, uh, this has been snipped off, and so I better give my uh, priority to... Uh, regrowing there uh, and my roots uh, have all shifted. So, you know, pl plants will have uh, some sort of internal uh, way of, of, of weighing up these different demands uh, on their resources and deploying appropriately. So I think we, we see it in plants, we see it in animals, we see it even in single-celled organisms. And it's that, that information processing, which is the key. Yeah, so, so, so I want to go there. Uh, before I do that, so, so for I want to ask you one thing. So we know that the ant is clearly alive. Uh, is the ant colony alive? Like an individual inside a company is alive? Company is yes. Alive? <laughs> yes, I, I, would, I would say that we should think of a colony as a super organism. I, uh, I'm not the person to coin that term. I think it was E.O. Wilson. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, individual ants sort of come and go and, and live and die, but the colony has a life cycle of its own. Uh, and so um, there is a sense, I think, in which we would think of the colony as a type of organism. Um, and people often say, what does that mean? You know, the World Wide Web or something like that is, uh, we should think of that as, as alive or conscious or as the sort of collective activity of, many, many humans. Um, and I think that's not a good analogy um, for the simple reason that the information processing, as I've already stressed with ants, does take place uh, collectively like that, whereas human beings are, are very powerful uh, examples of decision-making uh, in a solitary manner. I mean, we may consult other people, 
or we may go to committees and vote on something, but everyone makes up their own mind individually. I don't think ants do that. Yeah, so I want, that, that might be, uh, we're going a little bit over, on, a, on a tangent here, but I want to get your perspective on that. I wondered if that is uh, specific. Um, so so we can, we can see communities in, uh, let's say, Brazil or India or someplace like that, uh, who, who, who is going to behave very differently from our expectation of Western communities or Western culture. Yes. Right. So, Correct. so, so is it just a, you know, sort of a semantic issue? Um, uh, no, I think at the level of, of individuals, uh, what I've said is correct. But, um, of course, we mustn't forget the social structure and the social norms and uh, the, the way that individuals feel they're part of a collective and the way in which they're rewarded. So yet another one of my ASU colleagues uh, studies the uh, Maasai people in East Africa uh, and their notion of ownership and uh, and helping and so on is quite different from the sort of the Western model. Um, it's uh, basically... Uh, if there's something you need, you, you take it. Um, and if there's something you can provide, you make it available. Uh, and it's not done on a basis of, well, that's mine and you better pay me for it. Um, so it's a c completely different reward structure. But uh, I think at the more sort of basic level, um, wh what would an individual think? Um, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody thinks, well, I need, uh, uh, I need a bicycle rather urgently. And I know there's one uh, in that... Uh, Heart over there, um, I'm going to go and take it. Um, I, I don't think that is anything that's arrived at, you know, in some sort of collective manner. But the but the but the system as a whole is, of course, a pro property of the collective. So humans are really rather outliers in this respect. I think um, uh, it, it's always very hard to look at these general principles of biology and then say, well, can we apply those to humans? Because so many of the things we do are um, either unique or unusual among yeah. living organisms. For example, I don't know of any other organisms that really seriously have a sense of humour. <laughs> yes. uh, it's so that, you know, these things are... Uh, or, um, uh, of course, we're the... I mean, for me, what's dear to my heart, we're the only organisms who um, try to understand the world through science and abstract reasoning. Uh, yeah. and not just observe the world and optimise their behaviour, but uh, try to come to understand it, how it actually works. Um, yeah, so, so mm -hmm. let's go into the mm -hmm. physics a bit, Also, uh, I really subscribe to your, uh, your ideas, um, that, that, you know, the software of life uh, is fundamental. And um, if, you know, anybody watching a baby grow up, you can see a system that is that came up uh, with some operating system, basic operating system, and you start putting all sorts of applications on it and out comes a human being who has all sorts of ideas. Um, that is life and that's happening not only to humans, to every other biological entity, I would imagine, right? Yes. And so... Uh you make this distinction between hardware and software. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of the work has been done on asking how do chemicals 
basic dumb chemicals come together to make the hardware of life if i understand you correctly that is that is sort of a less interesting question than how did life gets its uh, its operating system and its software correct that's exactly it. this has been interested uh, for over a century uh, in how to make life from scratch uh, if you like um, cooking up life in a test tube lab and this has been dominated by chemists who have focused on the fundamental building blocks of which life is made things like uh, amino acids and sugars and so on and they haven't gone very far down that path but there is a perception that understanding how life emerged uh, has to do with getting the right sequence of chemical reactions and i think that is only uh, most half the story i think it's the lesser part of the story it's a little bit like uh, if you have a computer and uh, you're dazzled by the properties take something like um, powerpoint you think well that's amazing all these shapes moving around on the screen does all these things how does it work and if you go to a university and say uh, explain powerpoint to me uh and they send you to the computer science department and they take out a screwdriver and start taking the back off the computer and they say well you know there's some silicon in here and some copper and it's all a bit complicated but we think we're getting close to understanding what's going on if we just had a bigger research budget we could do it uh, you know you were being tricked because what you've got to do is go and talk to a software engineer who can write code uh and the secret of powerpoint and what makes a powerpoint not word or photoshop or something is is the software it's the code yeah. um and uh life is the same thing uh, it's not good enough to just have a whole lot of building blocks together somehow these molecules uh cooked up uh, the code book of life and code is the right term because the information in uh, dna is encrypted and it's only functional if it's decrypted by a molecular system and this uh, notion of encrypted stored and processed information uh, is something that uh, we associate with human activity but how on earth did it happen from a mishmash of chemicals how did molecules write code so that their um activity could be organized around uh information informational principles i think it's a very very deep mystery the origin of this genetic code which all life on earth by the way has the same coding assignments uh between the four letter alphabet of dna and the 20 letter alphabet of amino acids which make proteins they all have the same code why that code where it came from nobody really knows uh, i think that is the essence of trying to understand life's origin is how did the code come into existence yeah so let, let me push on that a little bit uh, paul so you cannot install powerpoint unless you have a computer right and so yes. so so aren't they sort of equally important i mean in some sense one could argue that unless you have the hardware sequence figured out there is no point thinking about the software because without the hardware you can't really install the software right of course it's the classic chicken and egg problem and it's yeah. been recognized by biologists uh, for decades that you can't really have the one without the other uh, and uh, surely they both didn't pop into existence ready made 
And so there's all sorts of attempts uh, trying to figure out how this uh, transition was made. Um, but the reason I think that uh, the software is more important is because you see, you can change the hardware. So uh, uh, these days it's it's easier. The, it was harder in the past. So uh, like many couples, I'm sure uh, out there, um, uh, you know, one has a Mac and the other has a PC and they each grumble about the other one and why don't you get this computer? And so we're in that situation. Um, but if I want to run a PowerPoint presentation, I can uh, I can take it to my wife's uh, Mac and it'll run pretty much okay on that. Uh, and so the, it can't run with no hardware, yeah. but it can be different hardware. And so that's, uh, if you're interested like I am in whether there's life beyond Earth, this is the field of astrobiology, then, uh, of course, what you want to know is what are the universal principles? Uh, in other words, is there some sort of software that can run on the alien hardware and still give you the same sort of basic characteristics? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the really key point. Uh, and uh, for me, that of course, the hardware is important because you've got to, that's still got to be put together somehow. Uh, we don't really know how that, that happened. But I think it's focusing in a way on the lesser problem. Yeah, so that, so that is really interesting. So let's talk about astrobiology a little bit. So, so, so are you saying, Paul? I don't know if I quite understand it. Are you saying that the hardware is sort of a standardizable problem? Um, it is a it is a problem of physics. Uh, chemicals came together, created something that looked interesting, but it's not alive unless you load the operating system and the apps on it. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, okay, so, and so from an astrobiology perspective, you could take a, a, a uh, Earth-based system and you could potentially reprogram it to be extraterrestrial outside the Earth. Right, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head here because um, the, this idea that you know the hardware isn't alive unless it's got appropriate software. If you take a bacterium and replace its DNA with just junk, uh, junk DNA that is uh, an arbitrary sequence, um, it's not going to do anything. So it uh, will effectively be dead. But if you've got an appropriate sequence for it to be functional, the organism to be functional, away you go. And we know now we can redesign organisms there's a particular technology called CRISPR which was the subject of the Nobel Prize last year for Jennifer Doudna one of the uh, inventors of that and uh, CRISPR means we can rewrite the code book of life uh, you can take it doesn't have to be a bacterium it, I mean, it can be a human being you can go in and you can rearrange the letters or the words or the instructions uh, to order. Now, of course, if you just do that randomly, uh, there's an overwhelming chance that you'll have a non-functional organism. Uh, but if you do it um, with some foresight and planning, then sure, you can engineer an organism in principle. You could engineer uh, a bacterium to live on Mars under its present conditions. There may be bacteria on Mars still clinging on to life in some way. Uh, but if what you wanted to do was like terraform Mars or use it as a biology experiment, I'm sure we could improve on I existing terrestrial uh, organisms. Um, but, but of course, it's still using the same fundamental biochemistry. The next step would be, uh, well, you could do um, biochemistry differently. You might have different 
nucleotides, different le letters of the DNA alphabet. You might have different amino acids to make the uh, proteins. Um, I have uh, friends and colleagues who do that sort of thing in the lab. You can you can do that. You can um, make additions and, and deletions and actually change the fundamental biochemistry, not just the, the letters, not just the, um, uh, the code as it's spelt out, but the actual components of the code itself. And then you could go on beyond that and you could say, well, what about life uh, based on uh, not just different code, different um, uh, uh, letters, uh, but a different uh, chain of chemical reactions altogether, maybe not even needing liquid water. And so all this sort of speculation has been out there for quite a long while because when astrobiologists think, uh, could there be life on Titan or Enceladus or, uh, you know, a, a, a water world or a world without water, um, they're thinking of all these possibilities. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, there's a theoretical exercise. Nobody has, has built an organism that uh, can can live without liquid water. But we can imagine the sort of... So if if the name of the game is the software, the appropriate uh, software arrangement, and that the hardware in which it's instantiated, that you run it on, could be different, I could imagine in the, in the future, when we get a bit smarter about doing these things, that uh, a, a planet could be discovered with certain features, and then you could have like a designer microbe uh, that, um, that could be made uh, to live there. Uh, yeah. All that is possible, I think. So, so it appears that there are two, sort of two puzzles, right? So just an approximate timeline, uh, the, the universe 13.75 years, solar system uh, 4.5 billion, uh, and the Earth approximately that, and and uh, life evolved on Earth or started on Earth, I should say, very very quickly, maybe four to three point five billion. So, do we have two puzzles? Uh, do we have sort of a hardware puzzle and a software puzzle? Did they did they did they happen together? Could they have been a time gap between the two? Uh, well, you're absolutely right that life did get going on Earth uh, pretty much as soon as conditions settled down. Uh, Earth is about four and a half billion years old, but it was a rather horrible place uh, for a while because there were so many asteroids and comets slamming into it. And some of these impacts might have been big enough to boil the oceans and sterilize the whole planet. So um, it's long been a bit of a mystery as to why things got going quickly. Uh, and there are a number of different explanations. One of these is that, well, maybe life came from somewhere else. Because remember, four and a half billion years sounds a long time to you and me. Uh, but uh, as you pointed out, the universe is uh, over 13 billion years old. So there were stars and planets around long before Earth even existed. And if yeah. life can get going fairly readily, then uh, it could certainly uh, get splashed around because these impacts I've just been mentioning uh, can eject rocks carrying microbes uh, into space and then they can fall on other bodies as well. Uh, and so it's not impossible that life came to our solar system from somewhere else and uh, Earth was sort of uh, freshly minted and settled down and was sort of ready for life, could host life, and it obligingly uh, dropped dropped in in the form of a meteorite. Uh, and this bombardment of meteorites, uh, I mean, this isn't a fortuitous thing. We know it's enormous uh, number of, of uh, 
extraterrestrial rocks uh, hitting the Earth all the time. So, uh, so it's a very natural mechanism. But of course, it's only putting off the evil day. You've still got to say, well, how did life get going on that other place? Uh, and did that require a coincidence of the hardware and software? Um, and, and we really don't know. Uh, I should say that there is another explanation. It's a sort of quirky one, but I think the logic is sound uh, as to why life got going very quickly. And that's, um, it's a selection effect. Uh, we're here on Earth talking about this uh, because life did get going quickly. And uh, when you, you look back, um, you see the Earth doesn't have an unlimited amount of time to wait for life to arise. Uh, it's the window of habitability is probably only about 4 billion years. Mm -hmm. So unless life had got going pretty fast at the beginning, it wouldn't have evolved to the point of intelligence by the time that window closed. So it could be an extremely rare dream run of events that has led to this, us being here within this window, which necessitated life getting started very early. That's a philosophical and a mathematical argument, yeah. not, a, not a chemistry or biology, but I think it has some force. And if we imagine that life is extremely rare in the universe, uh, and there are very, very few planets that have it, uh, it, it may be that those planet, planets that do have it, it has to get off to a quick start in order uh, to have it at this particular epoch of the universe. Yeah, so, so in this hardware-software context, Paul, is it possible that, you know, sort of the hardware happened, it was waiting for the operating system to get installed for a while? <laughs> I, I don't think so, for the simple reason uh, that... Um, first of all, the hardware, uh, we've been sort of uh, just using that term, is incredibly com complex. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at uh, even the simplest bacterium, uh, the specialized molecules and the total number of them uh, is uh, staggering. Uh, it's it's a, often give the analogy, it's like saying, oh, well, we finally figured out how to make a brick. So... Uh, New York City will just be more of the same. You know, there's no problem. Uh, it's it's how the whole thing is assembled. But it's worse than that because, of course, we've just got one of these things. It's not going to do anything. And if it's going to replicate, it can only replicate by having the software program for replication. Uh, it's got to be um, uh, a, the architecture for this was worked out by John von Neumann many decades ago, uh, self-replicating machine. If you think of, of life as being that. Uh, it's got to have a program uh, to run the, the replication process, and then it's got to make a replica of the program itself. Um, so all of that, uh, you know, has to be there. Uh, and so I don't think it's a matter of, well, we'll figure out a way of doing the complex chemistry and there'll be all these cells lying around just waiting for some software to drop in from space. Uh, I think that's not going to work. Yeah. Philosophically, that makes it uh, more difficult in some sense because... Uh, the problem remains to be sort of a higher complex problem that a bunch of chemicals got together, they started computing and they have a goal and they pursue those goals. Uh, it just seems too abstract in some ways, right? Yes. Well, it's, I think it's a very, very profound problem and I'm not yeah. the only one to think that. Uh, we don't have the answer. Uh, and through most of my career, I thought, well, that's just because we lack the technical detail yeah. to fill in the gaps, to, you know, join the dots. Uh, 
between just a mishmash of organic molecules and a living thing. Um, but I've come around to the point of view, the point of view that Schrodinger himself le left open uh, as a possibility, that not just that there's a new kind of physics operating in living matter, but a new kind of physical law, uh, that this isn't something uh, which is just some, you know, uh, different branch of physics. There's, there's some new kind of law, not just new law, new kind of law. And I think it's this kind of law that I've been talking about, which involves uh, the hardware and the software coupled together in, in a way uh, there, there will be, like all laws, there'll be some equations to describe how this happens. It'll be something that emerges at a certain level of complexity, uh, but it will lead to genuinely new physical effects and physical phenomena. Uh, this is for the future. Um, I think we've made enormous progress in understanding the molecular basis of life, uh, the reductionist program of breaking it down to its components, um, and that's very exciting. But the synthesis of putting it all together into a whole with the feedback loops from the whole to the parts, that's something that uh, the physicists in particular really struggle uh, to uh, to put that together. We it's it's The difficulty is that theoretical physics is so guided by mathematics that what we ideally want, you see a phenomenon, you write down an equation that seems to describe it, you solve the equation, you make predictions. That time-honored uh, procedure doesn't really work very well in biology, uh, where uh, it's... Um, where the holes and the parts get entangled together in a very uh, difficult way and the, and the standard type of differential equations really don't seem to work very well. Yeah, I sometimes felt, Paul, that the cost, the cognitive cost of reductionism is a lot lower than synthesis. So that's why we get a lot more <laughs> engineers, doctors, and yes. physicists. Uh, yes, but, yes. But fewer... Uh, fewer literature and uh, music graduates, right? Uh, the cognitive cost is a lot higher when you try to synthesize. synthesize. Yeah, yes, there's, there's no doubt that you get more bang for your buck. It's a great way to begin a research program. How does this system work? Well, let's smash it to bits and see what it's made of. Um, and you get, you get quite a long way uh, like that. Uh, but of course, if what you're looking at is a system, it's the whole thing, uh, then... Uh, then it becomes really baffling because we know with living organisms, if you look at their atoms, they just do what atoms got to do. Um, There's it, nothing special about a carbon atom in an organism, organism from a carbon atom uh, floating in the air. It's carbon dioxide. It, you know, it's got the same physical properties, but you get nowhere in trying to understand life by studying individual carbon atoms. It's the collective that is the important thing. Yeah. We'll do a quick break, Paul. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about life. Um, right. Are you okay to go another 15, 20 minutes? Uh, yeah, that should be fine. Okay, All right. I'll, I'll log off this and then wait yeah, for your message. I'll send you another link. Yeah. All thank right. You. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. 
So we are back uh, for uh, we are talking about life. Um, what the sort of the definition of life, how it might have started, we still don't have a lot of lot of knowledge around that. In the essay uh, that we were talking about, you say in truth, standard physics and chemistry have spectacularly failed to explain life's origin. <laughs> So, so we are still at that point, right? We, we haven't really gone a lot further. Uh, well, I'm afraid that's uh, true. That's not to denigrate the heroic efforts of a, a group of scientists called biophysicists. So these are physicists who, who will study the components of life, might, might be just individual molecules, might be some more complicated thing like a little pump or um, uh, devices that uh, walk along fibers and carry cargo and so on. And uh, they'll study these things and try to understand them in terms of basic principles of uh, force and energy and entropy and uh, things like that. And that's all fine. But of course, um, that's not really helping understand the essence of what life is really about, which as we've been discussing is really more to do with the system as a whole and with the way it uh, uses information to manage its affairs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we don't have that so well uh, understood with, within the scope of uh, traditional physics, but there is a clue, and it comes from uh, the physics of the mid-19th century and uh, the work in particular of James Clark Maxwell, who was one of the founders of the subject known as thermodynamics, yeah. Uh, that's a subject that looks at the nature of heat, all the molecules rushing around, uh, looks at uh, the efficiency of heat engines, get, when can you extract work from heat and what are the limits to that. All that was worked out uh, in the mid-19th century. Uh, and Maxwell came up with a very curious uh, idea. Uh, he imagined a box of gas with a, a partition down the middle, a screen, with a little hole in it. If you set that up, then of course, from time to time, a molecule will pass through the hole from left to right or from right to left, and it sort of averages out over time. But then he imagined uh, a little being that came to be known as a demon, a Maxwell's demon, uh, sitting near the hole with a shutter mechanism and then could block the passage of the molecule if it was, for example, moving very fast, but not if it was moving uh, more slowly. And uh, by doing that repeatedly, it would be possible to build up a temperature gradient. You'd have hotter gas on one side, molecules moving faster than on the other side. And then any competent engineer could run, uh, design a device to run off that temperature difference and do some useful work. So it looked like um, uh, the Maxwell had come up with some sort of perpetual motion machine that operated uh, on the basis of information. That is that uh, the demon would uh, gather information about the molecules uh, approaching the hole, uh, process that information internally, and then operate the shutter accordingly. Uh, and all of those maneuvers could be done in principle with no energy expenditure. So here was uh, uh, a method, it appeared, of converting information into work. And it was just a thought experiment at the time, but yeah. now nanotechnology has reached the point where real Maxwell demons can be well, manufactured. Yeah. This is this works. This is true. Uh, Maxwell demons are out there. They use information as a type of fuel. Yeah. And um, just read a paper yesterday about a new 
uh, way of doing this with uh, quantum information. And so uh, the idea that information has a real physical effect and is like a type of fuel has now become uh, pretty much accepted. So here we see a link between traditional physics of concepts like um, energy and work uh, and information, which seems to come from a different branch of inquiry altogether. But they are linked, and they, that link has been known since the middle of the 19th century. So that um, is a little chink. Uh, it's no more than that, because biological information is a much more elaborate uh, type of thing. It's not just sorting molecules. That does happen too. Uh, living organisms do sort molecules. They do. There are nanomachines in our own bodies uh, chuntering away, uh, playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics and gaining an advantage by using that little demon trick. Um, but uh, life is much more than about operating efficiently in terms of energy resources. It's about organization and management uh, and uh, applying or un understanding the laws of information management as they apply to physical matter is uh, something that is still beyond our understanding. But we, we do know that information is physical. It can exert physical effects, and we just need to understand how, in a more elaborate way, that happens in living organisms. Yeah, so, so information as fuel um, has a lot of implications, right? Um, uh, including astrobiology. So I, I want to go in that direction a little bit, uh, Paul. So, you know, we've been finding all these extrasolar planets. We, I think we found like 5,000 of them last 10, 15, 20 years. Many of them are Earth-like planets. They have rocks, uh, rocky planets, rocky surfaces. Uh, this might have been a dream for physicists maybe 30 years ago, <laughs> find them all over the place. Um, but uh, we haven't found any extraterrestrials yet. Um, you know, there is this idea of Fermi paradox. Uh, Enrico Fermi asking, where is everybody uh, if, if, they, if they are so prevalent uh, in the universe? We haven't found anything. So what's our sort of the latest thinking around this? Uh, you're quite right that there is currently no evidence for any life beyond Earth whatsoever, let alone intelligent life. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, activity. The subject of astrobiology is precisely dedicated to uh, finding examples of life beyond Earth. Uh, and the subject, the subset of that subject called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has been going about 70 years. And I've been closely involved with both of these. Uh, and um, the latest thinking, uh, it, let's just jump to uh, SETI for a moment. Uh, uh, how might we detect the existence of non-human intelligence? It really amounts to non-human technology. Uh, what would be uh, a technological uh, footprint or imprint or signature uh, out there in the universe that would make us sit up and pay attention? Um, and uh, for about 50 years, this was pretty much restricted to radio messages. So the SETI astronomers have been sweeping the skies with their radio telescopes, hoping to just stumble across a, a message from ET. Um, it's a sort of forlorn quest. There's a lot of stars out there. You don't know where to point the telescope. Um, it's uh, 
you have no idea whether anyone's transmitting or are they transmitting uh, deliberately to us and uh, really you could go on for a very long time, not find anything and indeed nothing has been found. Um, but uh, a broader strategy is say, let's not worry about messages. Let's just look to see if there's any alien technology. Uh, and one line of um, investigation into these so-called techno signatures yeah. uh, is to say, well, uh, in the past thousand years, human beings have modified the surface of our planet through agriculture and then technology. Uh, and so we've had a big impact global warming is the obvious one, a big impact on our terrestrial environment. Maybe in a million years, our technology would get to the point where we could have a big impact on our astronomical environment. Maybe our whole planetary system would show the marks of uh, technological uh, progress or design. Um, and so would an advanced civilization somewhere else uh, have these techno-signatures, mega structures or something other than just radio? that might show up uh, in a careful uh, survey. Um, and there have been a few uh, suggestions along those lines, one of these being uh, due to Freeman Dyson, that there, it could be that an energy-hungry civilization might try to trap all of the energy emerging from its star and harness that, and that would show up in a distinctive way in the color temperature of the, of the star and so on. Um, so all of these ideas have been thought uh, the, the one that I've been mostly involved with over the past 10 years or so um, is the possibility of alien technology in the solar system. Yeah. Uh, because it's for something to show up many, many light years away, it has to be truly enormous. Uh, but if there was an alien probe in the solar system, it might be a rather modest size. Um, and uh, so it would be easy to imagine that some advanced civilization had sent probes here uh, the big problem there is is the duration of time. Uh, yeah. Such probes might have come any time in the four and a half billion year lifetime of Earth. There's no particular reason they should be coming now. Uh, and if there were probes here in the past, maybe uh, they've long since uh, uh, functioned. Uh, these are defunct uh, probes. Um, how would we find them? Where would where might we look? Um, and there's all sorts of suggestions about where we might look. Uh, there are conferences on this all the time. I'm, I'm closely involved in coming up with ideas. Of course, it's a huge needle in a haystack without any guarantee there's a needle there at all. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so the latest thinking, uh, yeah. I think as you asked, is that maybe we should concern ourselves less with possible radio messages and more with looking for um, nearby techno signatures. Uh, when it comes to the broader question of is there life beyond Earth, say bacterial life, um, that's a different set of issues. And so there's still some hope that within the solar system yeah. we may find uh, simple life, bacterial life. Mars is my favourite. Uh, mm -hmm. Recently there was a flurry of interest. Could there be life in the clouds of Venus? And then a lot of people like the icy moons of the outer solar system, like Europa and Enceladus, these are covered in ice and icy crust, but with liquid underneath, might there be life there? So all of these things are possibilities. There's a big problem with the solar system, and I discussed it earlier, that there's impacts by 
asteroids and comets that splatter rocks all around the solar system. And these rocks can convey terrestrial microorganisms to Mars, for example, or vice versa. So it could be that there is life on Mars. We'll go there, we'll find there is life there, but it's just boring old terrestrial life. It's got there from here. It doesn't mean it's a second genesis. It doesn't mean life has started from scratch on Mars as well as on Earth, um, which is what we really like to know. We'd like to know, is the universe intrinsically biofriendly? Will it bring life into existence against the raw odds uh, once conditions permit? Or is is life on Earth just a fluke, just a result of a dream run of, of uh, particular chemical reactions? We don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And once you go beyond the solar system, well, then we're outside of the range of where we can send space probes. Uh, then it becomes very hard, because how would you know if there's life on one of these extrasolar planets you mentioned uh, a little earlier? Mm-hmm. What, what would be a signature of such life? Some people say, oh, oxygen in the atmosphere would be a giveaway, there must be plants. But no, it turns out that there's other ways of getting oxygen. Um, and so if it's not intelligent life, if it's just um, uh, something pretty simple, then finding that uh, signature, that biosignature, from Earth is, is a big challenge. So lots of thought being given to this, uh, many conferences, many books written, uh, many discussions, but uh, really we're just as much in the dark about it as we were 50 years ago. Yeah. You know, it seems to me, Paul, two fundamental issues. One is this harsh constraint that Einstein gave us, that you cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Yeah, that's very sad. <laughs> it's, it's really sad. And the other constra- other issue is um, we don't have a good understanding how to multiply zero with uh, infinity. No. Um, so you can pretty much make up anything that you want there. Uh, and so as you, as you described in your books and elsewhere that till we can find life 2.0, it is going to be all speculation. I mean, anybody can say anything uh, they want, uh, but till then there isn't really any statistical or mathematical way for us to uh, put an, put some odds on this, right? That's right. Um, I'm always being asked in interviews, well, what are the chances we're going to find life in my lifetime, something of that sort? And I say, well, the, the question simply, uh, it infuriates me because it, it clearly cannot be answered. Uh, there's something called the Drake equation. This is due to Frank Drake, who pioneered uh, the whole subject of SETI. Uh, and he wrote down all the factors that you would need to know to work out how many civilizations there might be in the galaxy. Uh, and the first few factors we do know quite well. It's like the rate of star formation and the number of planets with stars and so on. We know we can measure those things. But then we hit the one that's a really big uh, unknown, which is given an Earth-like planet, what are the chances that life will emerge on it? And that one we haven't a clue because we don't know yeah. how non-life turned into life. And people say, oh, well, you know, uh, come up with an, an estimate. Well, you can't estimate the probability of an unknown process. If you tell me what the process was, I can have a go at working it out. Uh, but if you don't even know what it is that you're trying to estimate, uh, you're completely stuck. Uh, and then after, you know, once life gets going, uh, of course, it's still, there are issues. What are the chances that, um, that microbial life will eventually evolve into intelligent life? Um, 
We don't know how to work that out either, but at least we understand the process. It's called Darwinian evolution. Yeah. Yeah. We know, we know, uh, the, and so in principle, you could have a go at trying to calculate that, but you can't possibly calculate going from non-life to life because we don't know what did it. Uh, and so uh, we're absolutely stuck. It could be that there is only one planet in the entire universe with life on it, and we are it. Uh, <laughs> it would be no surprise that we find ourselves on that planet and not on another one. I mean, it's you know, by definition, we are it. Um, it's equally possible, or at least a lot of my colleagues think this might be the case, uh, that the universe is teeming with life. It's, uh, it's all over the place. Um, but that would only be true if there is some sort of life principle at work in the universe, something to coax matter into life against the raw odds of just shuffling the molecules. You wait forever to just shuffle molecules. Um, if there is such a principle, and there may be, um, because I was hinting earlier that there's new physics in living matter, there may be a principle of that nature, but we haven't found it yet. Um, yeah. And until we do find it, it's impossible to work out, uh, even if you imagine the experiment of life, all life on Earth being wiped out, what are the chances in another million years or 10 million years it would start up again? Uh, we have no idea how to work that out. But if there was a life principle that we understood well enough, you could have a go at estimating that. And then we could get an answer to your question, you know, how, what are the chances of, of life somewhere else in the galaxy? Yeah. I, I always felt, Paul, that if we come up with a chemistry or biology explanation to life, uh, it's going to be very difficult to extend it um, outside our system. So, so ultimately, we need a physics explanation to life. And yes. I always felt that, you know, some sort of thing like, you know, there is an uh, inherent... Uh, built-in requirement for accelerator entropy. Then life is probably the best thing we know that accelerates entropy. And so if something like that exists, then you have sort of a physics explanation, then we, we can possibly <laughs> speculate that there should be life out there. Yes, uh, and so that's my dream, that will unify physics and biology uh, by finding... Uh, the principles that apply to this new t kind of physical law, as Schrodinger expressed it, that is operating in living matter and joins, somehow joins living matter and non-living matter. And that pathway between the two, uh, you would have a way of understanding uh, what it takes uh, to traverse that pathway and what the probability of a system uh, making that uh, transition would be. Um, we, we don't have that yet, but here is a challenge to... Anyone listening to me now, any young people who are thinking of a career in science, yeah. um, what should they do? Should it be in uh, physics, which has had such a fantastic few centuries of success? Uh, could it be in biology, which is um, uh, an emerging discipline but doesn't have quite that level of success uh, of physics? I would say it would be in the interface of the two, mm -hmm. a place where physics and and chemistry and biology and computing and information theory and nanotechnology where they all converge i think it's at the interfaces of those disciplines we're going to see the exciting developments in the coming decades exciting development and anybody listening to this and uh, going through school now uh, i think uh, paul i i don't know a lot about this but i think next 20 years uh, 
potentially going to be more interesting than the last. Uh, yeah, sorry, I just just had an interrupt. I'm going to have to go in just a second because this yeah. uh, person's just arrived. Um, uh, sorry, can you just repeat that question? No, no, I was just we'll saying, make... you know, for anybody listening, the next 20 years from a sort of a discovery development perspective are going to be more interesting than the last 20. You know, it seems like we have been sort of stagnant in some ways last 20 years. Uh, but so... But, uh, as I explained earlier, by profession, I'm a theoretical physicist. And yeah. so uh, the last 20 years have seen some extraordinary excitement in, in the area of fundamental physics because we've uh, seen the discovery of the Higgs boson, yeah. which uh, was the missing piece of the jigsaw that unifies the weak uh, and electromagnetic interactions. So that's been uh, uh, predicted since the 1960s, finally found a few years ago. And then the discovery of gravitational waves, yes. which Einstein yes. predicted over 100 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, they've, uh, and throughout my career, I've known the people who dedicated their, their lives to searching for these gravitational waves, trying to build detectors, and finally they have been detected. So uh, physics is not a done deal yet. It's still got a, a way to run, yeah. uh, but it does depend uh, in both of the cases I gave you on very expensive, large-scale technology. These uh, yeah. machines that, are, that detected the Higgs boson, the gravitational waves are huge, uh, and they require vast teams of uh, individuals to operate them. Um, but if you want to uh, have more modest resources and uh, get more bang for your buck, then it would be in the areas that we've been discussing today. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Paul, thanks so much for spending time with me. This has been great. Uh, well, it's been a wonderful conversation and thank you for inviting me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.